the National Archives podcast series, Writing a History of One's Own Times, presented by Peter Hennessy, as part of our Writer of the Month series of talks. It's a great pleasure and an honour to be here. It's one of my favourite places on earth, the National Archives. I'm sure it's a feeling I share with many of you here. Several of you have heard me say this before, but I plan to die here of overexcitement <laughs> when the catalogue springs into life with a document that's going to explain the British Constitution. <laughs> to me, at last. And it'll be all too much for me. And I'll collapse before I can open the file. The mystery intact. And I said this once down here when Derry Irvin was the Minister for the Public Records, Lord Chancellor, and he came down to open the Education Centre. I was opening the Cold War website, I think. And I said to Derry how wonderful the National Archives is. It exists to give me what I ask for, unlike other government departments. And how I love it so much, I'm going to die here. And he looked at me as if he had a loony on his hands. <laughs> I'm very fond of Derry, but he, he, we didn't know each other then. And uh, over drinks afterwards, the staff here, who are without equals, said, if your family agreed to have you stuffed, you can come down here and be an exhibit. We can put you in the stacks, <laughs> like Jeremy Bentham. And we thought of my uh, classification, which would be Goss 1, because I do love gossip. I'll come back to gossip in a minute as one of the great themes of writing about the history of one's own times. In fact, I've often described... People say, what is contemporary history? It's an oxymoron. My serious definition is from the 3rd of September 1939 till this morning's first editions of the new national newspapers. But my unofficial definition is gossip with footnotes. That's what it is. And all the better for it, I think. And my, one of my few regrets in professional life, because I've been very fortunate, is that I won't now be able to write the book which... I'd like to think I had within me, which is a history of the impact of gossip and rumour on high politics. But to do it, I would have had to have started making notes every weekend from the mid-70s when I was first a political correspondent, because you can't recapture it. The diaries of other people help a bit. Private Eye helps in a strange sort of way, but not really. And all sorts of people who should know better believe almost anything for a few hours. And I think it's got even worse because of Twitter and so on, which I don't use. People are immensely credulous. But to capture that, it would take a young woman or a young man journalist at the Westminster lobby uh, briefings and digging generally each week to do it. And I can't do it now. But wouldn't it be a fabulous book? Fabulous book to do. But there we are. Never mind. That's the book that got away. I do think that the history of our own times has a special fascination for many of us. And John Buchan of 39 Steps fame caught it in his 1940 memoirs when he said, in the cycle in which we travel, we can only see a fraction of the curve. And the job of those of us that work down here, and of historians generally, is to describe as much of the curve as possible up to the point we've reached. And I know what Buchan meant. And I think that's the great justification for history. I don't think we should have to justify it, because like all intellectual pursuits, it has a justification of its own. I'm a great believer in Cardinal Newman's notion of the university. I think there's only three of us left who believe in Cardinal Newman's notion of the university, which is a place to quicken the imagination and the curiosity, not necessarily to produce anything practical. And successive generations of ministers, by and large, don't see that. I try and persuade them by saying nobody would have given grants to those extraordinary nerds in the universities who were doing number theory in the 20s and 30s but these people not only saved us in the war several times through their code-breaking exploits, they invented an entire new industry on the side called computing. And yet they were regarded as uh, incomprehensible 
and not, I'm sure, there wasn't much university support in those days anyway, but you never know what's going to turn up trumps in terms of intellectual pursuits. And there's a tremendous uh, temporal chauvinism, as the scientist Carl Sagan calls it, um, the, the, the determination to believe that only what matters to you now is, is really uh, crucial, that affects our decision takers. Now having said that, the settlement for the universities was much better than it might have been the other day in the Comprehensive Spending Review, so I mustn't be too unkind. Now, some of these curves that John Buchan had in mind describe the great perpetuals of our national conversation. Europe, which we can't handle as a concept, melts us down, has done since May 1950, when Jean Monnet turned up with the plan for a coal and steel community. Party system can't handle it because it's not left and right. Europe is the great destabiliser. Our place in the world question, which is linked to Europe, of course, should we remain a nuclear weapon state? Immigration, been a preoccupation of considerable intensity, though it fluctuates. And our wish to stimulate and sustain economic growth. It's remarkable how Alan Watkins, the great political journalist, used to think that British political history was like an old movie tone, that every so often you came back to the same subject. The film this time might be in colour, uh, and you might, uh, the words might change slightly. But British politics was like an old movie tone. Much-loved themes repeat themselves over many generations. I think in some ways it's more like an Ealing comedy. It's the Ealing comedy that was never made. I do wish the Ealing comedy, the genius of Tibby Clark and all the rest of them, had been applied to the House of Lords, actually. My friend John's here. But I think it would have made the ultimate Ealing comedy in the House of Lords. And I say that with complete affection, because I adore every moment of being in there. Kind hearts and coronets didn't quite do it, you see. But the House of Lords, if any young filmmakers here, is sitting there for you for the Ealing comedy treatment. I'm digressing. <laughs> but last year I published a book on the theme of writing about the history of one's own times called Distilling the Frenzy. And it's in revised paperback form now. I've added a chapter on the, um, the lessons drawn from the hung parliament last time called When the People Say Don't Know. And the Cabinet Office, Number 10, and the Palace very kindly declassified for me the timeline that they drew up after the event of who, which meetings were held and who said what, what quite, who said what to whom, but who talked to whom and when. Uh, and I've included it in that. It was a sort of premature release, but I was very grateful for that. Because the British Constitution um, only recently has been written down on this. All the things that matter we tend not to want to write down uh, because that's the way we are. But in the run-up to the 2010 general election the Cabinet Office and the Palace decided that it might be an idea if this was written down. And all this is in the public domain because the then Cabinet Secretary, Gus O'Donnell, made it public to the Justice Select Committee of the House of Commons just before the 2010 election. And six or so outsiders were brought in to help to work out what um, uh, our historical constitution had to say or not say about what the Queen does and when, or doesn't do and when in the circumstances of a hung parliament. And it was written down as an early draft of what's now the complete cabinet manual and given to the Justice Select Committee. And having a terrible instinct as a forecaster, I didn't think it was going to be a hung parliament, actually. Um, but I was very relieved that we had that bit of paper. And this shows the value of contemporary history because the historians had a bit to play in getting, this, getting it written, uh, we hope accurately. And without that scrap of paper, it had been very hard to hold the line on the television and radio programs over the five days in May in 2010 before we got a government. Because politicians were exhausted, they say all sorts of strange things, and as it wasn't written down, or it was written down for the first time, 
it really helped because the Queen can't go on television and say one does this and one doesn't do that. <laughs> so we had to impersonate the British Constitution over five days. And without that bit of paper, which is heavily historically based, we would have been in serious trouble. It's all been tweaked a bit since then. So the new paperback has got that in it. But the title of the book, Distilling the Frenzy, comes from a favourite passage of mine uh, towards the end of John Maynard Keynes' The General Theory of Employment, Interest and Money. I mustn't give you the impression that I read all of it because I can't understand <laughs> the bulk of it. Never could. But at the end, he has some pertinent things to say about the political class, as we would now call it. And this is what he wrote. Madmen in authority who hear voices in the air are distilling their frenzy from some academic scribbler of a few years ago. It's a wonderful notion of distilling the frenzy. So that's where the title comes from. There's been another shadow, uh, that of a very different great man, and one who caused we Brits a great deal of trouble some time ago, uh, Napoleon Bonaparte. Um, I always have him in mind when I'm seeking to capture at least a bit of the history of my own times, because Napoleon liked to remark that if you seek to understand a man or a woman, you have to appreciate the world as it was when they were 20. That's what he firmly believed. In my case, I think it's when I was six, not because I was precocious, but because I was six in 1953, which is a particularly vivid and potent year, as some of you here, though not all, will remember, coronation year. There was a spectacle of the beautiful young queen, uh, contrasted to the ancient warrior prime minister still there, Winston Churchill. The news of Everest being climbed by a Commonwealth expedition came in as if on cue in the early hours, if I remember, of coronation day. We had a wonderful science and technology backdrop. We, were, uh, we held the airspeed record. We were well on the way to building the world's first civil nuclear power. We had all sorts of things that we were uh, very proud of, industrial and technological prowess. And being a young male, I read the Eagle comic, which some of you here might have read. And they were very good at this, because they had all these cutouts uh, for the mechanically minded of the new art royal or what the new Gatwick Airport, which is going to be the last word in airports and solve the, the air traffic problem forever, all that, um, and called a hall, the nuclear one. So we were well aware of all this. And looking back now, it seemed to me at the time, though I wouldn't have put it like this, but I would now, that we'd cracked it. We were very poor still after the war, lost a third of our wealth in the war, and there was still rationing. Very optimistic compared to today, though, I think. But we seemed to have cracked it because we were a deeply traditional nation and society and yet could handle modernity in all its technical forms and this was a this was a deeply satisfying fusion and I felt it at the time and looking back I think I think we felt we belonged to a success story nation and everybody rather liked belonging to a success story nation and apart from that wonderful six-week burst last summer of the Olympics and the Paralympics we haven't felt that perhaps until 5.30 on Sunday afternoon, <laughs> that we did belong to a success story nation. We got very scratchy with ourselves, actually. Um, so that's where I'm stuck in 1953, in my short trousers in North Finchley, scanning the sky if I heard a strange noise in case it was the Comet airliner on a practice run from Hatfield. Oh, you see, it. it's all too much, really. <laughs> it's a good thing there's air conditioning in this room, otherwise I would melt with the emotion of it all. But all this, I think, helps explain, too, why so many in my generation carry inside them a modified version of the great power impulse, what Douglas Hurd calls the instinct to intervene. It's very hard for us to settle for what might, might I call mediocrity, and it has an effect in our view of our place in the world, which can be overdone. I'm not a wider still and wider man, 
I think we should try and do good in the world where we can. Um, and that instinct is still very powerful within us. And I think it's part of that shared compost. Certainly in my age group it is. There's another element which burnished our sense of specialness and belonging still more. We children of the early post-war were the beneficiaries of the Attlee and Settlement, this much-debated consensus. But there was a welfare consensus between the two parties. They competed in those days for who was the progenitor of it all, rather than who could cut fastest. And it was a wholly different atmosphere. And Churchill said this in the war, I think there's no better investment for a country than to pour milk into babies. Well, I was one of those. And Nye Bevan said to Barbara Carlson in 1948, if you want to see what all this is about, Barbara, NHS welfare, look in the perambulators. You see, that's me again. And we were remarkably well taken care of. And I was so aware of that. The NHS in particular was a badge of common citizenship. It's interesting that Mrs. Thatcher, though she had very powerful free market impulses, knew, and I don't think even intended to touch it or replace it with an insurance-based system. And I think it's why when the Health and Social Care Act was passing through the Commons and the Lords a couple of years ago, it was so difficult for everybody and why it was so toughly fought, especially in the House of Lords where the children of Mr. Attlee's settlement are warehoused. The average age is 69.5, you see. I'm still the youth policy in the House of Lords. <laughs> and the reason it dawned on me one day, you may think this is wrong, that almost every other clause in that enormous bill reflected either the Atlean settlement, the universal all-in-it-together provision, or the market impulses of Mrs. Thatcher's era, the two great weathermaker systems, post-war British politics. It's very hard to reconcile them. Also, the NHS is unlike any other state activity. It goes straight into us, you know, all sorts of feelings, solidarity with others, including our own extended families, very powerfully, because it's the nearest we've ever come to institutionalising altruism. And so it's not like any other debate about any other state activity. And all these post-war factors are swirling around, particularly in the House of Lords, when night after night we slog through all those clauses. Another key element in all this, children of the post-war, writing the history of their own times, is uranium, quite literally. We're the children of the uranium age, not the Bronze Age, silver, gold, but uranium, because we grew up in the shadow of the bomb, this, the shape of those mushroom clouds over Japan. And you didn't need a degree in theoretical physics, even though I was very small in 54, when we reached the thermonuclear age. Well, actually, technically, in 52, the United States exploded the first one. Because these bombs were 1,000 to 1,500 times more powerful than the atomic bombs that had destroyed the Japanese cities. And you knew that. And you had a sense that it could all end in one afternoon, in a great blast, heat, flash. And here we were, the first blooms of affluence, the first time we'd become really a mass consumption society, once rationing went in 1954. And the paradox of it was that all this betterment, including the health, education and welfare that we were benefiting from, that the post-war generation had put in place for us, could all end. And it was a very strange childhood in that sense. And, of course, it didn't feature as an anxiety every hour of every day, but it certainly did in October 1962 at the time of Cuba, as several of you here will remember. And um, the Strath Report, which was declassified down here in 2002, is the way I, I get the students who can't remember any of this through the crust of memory. Because the Strath Report was commissioned by Winston Churchill in 54, and it was produced, I think, when Anton Eden was just Prime Minister in 55, and it was 
to describe what the effect of 10 10 megaton Russian hydrogen bombs would be on the UK. And it's the most extraordinary document I've ever read down here in some way. And cabinet ministers were given their own copy on a personal basis, and they couldn't keep it because it was too sensitive. Went back into the cabinet office registry. And there were 46 million of us then. 12 million would be dead straight away. 4 million seriously injured straight away. Over the next three months, many millions more would go through radiation poison. And it said, this is beyond the imagination till it happens. It's quite extraordinary. And yet, you didn't need to read Strath or to, or to be a physicist to know about this as a child or as an adult come to that. There was one terrible moment in here, actually. They're normally glorious moments in here. It's, it's a pleasure palace for me. But um, I was an adolescent male in 62 in Gloucestershire in an all-male grammar school. And after the Cuban Missile Crisis, which had come out of the blue, immensely threatening, and then receded again very quickly, we all worked out in my grammar school what we would do in the last four minutes of life when the warning sirens went, left from World War II. And being of that age, and the high school for girls being just across the road, <laughs> we, um, we'd worked it down to the last yard. <laughs> and then in here, declassified, a few years ago now, was the briefing for Harold Wilson when he first became Prime Minister of what nuclear inventory he was inheriting and about the warning system. And the warning system turned out to be three and a half minutes, not four. <laughs> well, this gave me an immense retrospective depression <laughs> because it wouldn't have worked. <laughs> And I mentioned this at an intelligence history conference at which there was a very nice lady who was very high up in British intelligence then, she's retired since, who was in the Stroud High School for Girls and her brothers were with me in my school, Marling School. And I said, with X in the audience, I'm not sure I should mention this, but I said to the audience what I just said to you. And she said, oh no, don't worry, Peter. It would have been all right. We had exactly the same idea. We would have met halfway. <laughs> so all sorts of strange retrospective adolescent emotions can be stirred by an afternoon in the National Archives. <laughs> Well, in my case, they can. I shouldn't generalise. Now, the Cold War has been um, very fruitful as a subject for study down here since William Waldgrave, as John Major's Minister for Open Government, um, put in place what we call the Waldgrave Initiative, when he invited historians to ask for long runs of documents that had been retained longer than the 30 years that might be available now the Cold War was over. And the yield has been fabulous. Some of the material is of a sensitivity that still amazes me that it's come out even now, on the intelligence of the nuclear side in particular. And it's been a whole new currency with which British historians can trade. And it's feeding through into books now, um, which are of the highest quality, based on documents. And it's proving to be an antidote to the fantasy history of British intelligence. Because there's more fantasy per square inch about the British intelligence services than anything except the royal family. And if some clever author can link the two, they're away. <laughs> so the Walgrave Initiative and the yield down here is uh, quite remarkable. Quite remarkable. Very interesting books, and we're still getting it. Uh, we've got a debate in the House of Lords tomorrow evening on official histories and archives. And I'm going to talk about how lucky we are to have had the latest bonanza. Because of the completion of the two official histories by Chris Andrew on MI5 and Keith Jeffrey on MI6, we've had near cornucopic releases of documents once they finish with them down here. Again of a sensitivity that I didn't expect. We had one in May, great release, of the Permanent Undersecretary's Department files um, from the Foreign Office right up to 1951. That's the link bit with SIS. 
full of gold. Also, what I call the Cabinet Secretary's too-hot-to-handle file, where he put the bits of paper that wouldn't fit anywhere else that were just unbelievably sensitive. And they run right through from 1936, abdication stuff, which got everybody excited, to 1951, to Sir Norman Brooke, the Cabinet Secretary's fascinating review of the secret agencies uh, six years into the Cold War. Very candid, fascinating, but full again of gems. And these have come out because of the completion of the SIS official history. So it's had this trigger effect in terms of further releases for us down here. And it's all to the good. So that's why I'm going to sort of sing a hymn of praise to all this tomorrow evening in the House of Lords. Now, um, this catch-up history really matters because there's been so many gaps in, that, in those sensitive areas in our detailed knowledge of the British state since 1945, but they're far, far fewer now. And it's been a great pleasure to be with my research students and my colleagues to be spending the last couple, last couple of decades now on this catch-up history. It's all quite timely, too, because the Russians now, they've got a bit of uh, oil and gas revenue uh, at it again, I think. Well, I know they are. And Vladimir Putin is quite keen to remind the world that he's back again and uh, tell NATO and the United States and us that, that he's back. The Tupolevs are coming down off Stornoway again and the, and the typhoons are scrambled from Lucas to head them off. There's a lot of waving going on, all the usual stuff, you know. Norwegians get them first as they come round Murmansk and they hand them over to us. And if they go down the North Sea, we hand them to the Dutch. And if they're going to Cuba, we follow them quite a way out into the Atlantic and so on. And all that's happening again. The submarine activity is being stepped up again in the North Atlantic. And um, I was off Florida with the Royal Navy last October to watch one of our Trident missiles being tested. It's the midlife refit of HMS Vigilant. And the Russians sent this enormous spy ship for the first time in years. In the, in the boring jargon, it's called an AGI, an Auxiliary Gathering Intelligence, absolutely brimming with aerials. It was huge. It was trying to get into the test area, exclusion zone, and the United States Coast Guard was cutting it off with two boats, and the helicopters, the Black Hawks, were on it. And I, it was three miles from where I was, because it was trying to get in, and I was two and a half miles from where the missile was going to emerge. And um, when it finished, it was out, out of central casting. And I've got a tape of this. Because suddenly, on band 16, which is the open one, the captain of the Leonov broadcast to all of us involved. And he said, this is captain of Russian warship. Congratulations to Royal Navy on successful firing of D-5 Trident missile. Congratulations to US Coast Guard on fine seamanship. Congratulations to survey vessel. Russian captain out. Terrific. Straight out of central casting. <laughs> and... Um, the Russians had human agents on the beaches and in the bars where our lads go, not that our lads would say anything. Terrific, really, just like the old days. Everybody feels so much more at ease. You know where you are with them, you see. <laughs> and um, the latest figures, I think, show that the, there are just the same number of intelligence officers in the Russian trade mission and the Russian embassy in London now as they were in the 80s, 34. Very flattering, really, isn't it? If there's anybody here from that bit of the woods, good afternoon. It's very nice to see you. <laughs> But it is a strange post-Cold War world we live in. Of course, there's two big weather makers now we're living with, which are very different. One is 9-11, and the other is the financial crash of September 2008. What might the next one be? Who knows? I've got enough problems trying to help sort out the past with my fellow historians without forecasting, and I have a terrible record as a forecaster. 
Though I'm pleased that Whitehall is enhancing its horizon scanning capacities. The Cabinet Secretary is very keen on all this, and there was a report written in the autumn on this to make better use of the many, many bits of horizon scanning that are done across Whitehall and the secret world, and to use the product more carefully. And they've declassified it. It's on their website now. And also they're quite keen on the history of horizon scanning. I was asked to give a paper when the review was underway on how we've developed horizon scanning since the Met Office was set up in 1854 by Captain Fitzroy. It really, it's since the Committee of Imperial Defence was set up in 1902, I think. But um, we've been very good at it. There's no history of horizon scanning in this country. Sort of cry out for treatment. And it's all in here. Vast quantities of it. Uh, the Committee of Imp- I, th- I think the new National Security Council, which is a great thing, is essentially the old Committee of Imperial Defence with computers. Um, but you couldn't call it that these days. It would be misunderstood. But the real reason I think history does help all of this in Whitehall, current Whitehall, it's, a, it's something Louis Pasteur said. Chance favours the prepared mind. It doesn't mean to say that I'm a history repeats itself man. I'm not at all. I'm more with Mark Twain, that history doesn't repeat itself, but sometimes it rhymes. And that's where we come in. That's the value of what we do down here. And also, it brings a necessary humility, a good historical knowledge if you're in authority. I'm not in authority. I've never aspired to be. But if I was, I would want historical soothsayers. Not soothsayers. Historical, how can I put it, sages around me saying, come on, it's not that simple. Come on, come on. Uh, It's the great cosmologist Carl Sagan again. He said uh, that humans have a tendency to confuse hopes and facts. And I think politicians fall into that trap quite remarkably frequently. And on the backward trajectory, which is what we do, historians must strive, including their own times, but above all their own times in a way, to avoid what Edward Thompson called the enormous condescension of posterity. We don't go back to sneer or to say, how could you be so foolish, but to try and understand. And we have to try and hear people and their histories, their societies and their practices and their institutions from the inside. And that's why all this down here is wonderful. I know it's the, it's the state's residue, it's not society's residue, although there's a lot of social stuff in here. And you can fall into traps down here of thinking that what, what is stored here by way of frozen history in the, paper, in the papers is history for all intents and purposes. Of course it isn't. But it's absolutely indispensable what we have down here. And thank heavens it's been so beautifully preserved and cared for by all our friends in the departmental record sections and down here. Because, as I was saying the other day when we were together, I think it was there, that think of the enterprise. We understand it because we're part of this place. We're customers, friends of it. Just think of the enormous enterprise and the duty of care that has to be exercised over decades by large numbers of people in, in a big system before it arrives safely here and is kept well here. If it goes wrong at any stage, it's irretrievable. And so we are the beneficiaries of this most extraordinary collective effort, which we do feel every day. And I know we've all got our worries and it'd be nice to have this and where's that file gone. But when you think about it, it is one of the great boons of being a Brit and being able to come here that we've got this extraordinary place to do what it does for us with such charm as well. So for all the National Archives friends here, thank you very much. And I'm sure I'm not just saying that on behalf of me but of all of us. Thank you for inviting me. This talk was recorded on the 9th of July 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>